You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, MD, Jawbreaker, Kenway, Toves, Loining, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Redbeard, Legends, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefei, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. The late 1630s were a contentious time in English politics. King Charles faced open opposition to his rule. Every time he had a Protestant leader imprisoned, or every time a Protestant gathering was broken up by force of arms, the opposition to the king's rule grew even stronger. It became clear that war was on the horizon, regardless of what the king might do to stop it. As a result, both sides militarized and prepared for war. By 1641, everyone was drawing battle lines. Literally, battle lines. Food was being stockpiled and forts were being manned by soldiers. Peasants were armed and noblemen spent their days riding around the countryside looking menacing. Much like the American Civil War, the lines that were drawn prior to the fighting were on hundreds and hundreds of tiny fronts. And today we're going to be concerned with one of those fronts, perhaps the farthest away from the center of the conflict. It was a military backwater, which is kind of funny considering it would eventually become the center of power for the most expansive and powerful military that the world would ever know. It was, however, strategically important at the time. It was already an economic engine over which forces were struggling, and it had the potential to become, well, America. This is episode 156, High Treason. America was key to the religious equation taking place in England at this point. And that's not historical analysis, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. but people at the time knew that. One of the most prominent Puritan publications at the time said, quote, The eyes of all Europe are looking upon our endeavors to spread the gospel among the heathen people of Virginia and plant an English nation there. End quote. Now, of course, the Puritans would become a larger factor later on up to the north of Virginia, New England, 
Today we're talking about the Chesapeake, Virginia and Maryland, and the fight between those two colonies. At this point in our story, 1641, the tensions on the Chesapeake had reached something of an equilibrium. Kent Island, formerly a part of Virginia under William Claiborne, was now a part of Maryland under Leonard Calvert and the Baron Baltimore. It was still a prominent fur trading operation, but it also served as a trading post for tobacco and other goods. Now you might remember one of the men we mentioned last time, a man named Cornwallis, Captain Thomas Cornwallis. He commanded one of the forces that captured Kent Island from William Claiborne's lieutenants. By 1641, he was a prominent trader in Maryland, known both at St. Mary's and Kent Island, with residences there and back in England. He traded in furs and in tobacco, and was making quite a lot of money. In the winter of 1641, he sailed into the Chesapeake on board a ship of another English captain, a man named Richard Ingle. Thomas Cornwallis and Richard Ingle were business partners, but they were also friends. They worked together. Not exclusively. They did run their own trading missions or sometimes partner with others, but when they did, they would pool their resources, buying goods back in Europe, and trading them in America. Their relationship as friends and business partners reminds us of something that we see in the American Civil War in places like Missouri. In the border regions, when we see stories that seem almost cliché despite being true, stories of brother literally fighting brother on opposite sides. The story of Richard Ingle and Thomas Cornwallis kind of gives us a small-scale picture of the rift that was occurring at this moment in English society. On this particular voyage in 1641, they had a haul of English wool bound for America. Wool was a common and valuable commodity in the colonies. Cotton wasn't yet being grown, and wool was needed for clothing. Donald G. Chamette writes in Pirates on the Chesapeake, quote, Neither Ingle nor Cornwallis could have suspected that within two years they would soon be playing opposite roles in a tragic episode that would come to be known in Tidewater history as the Plundering Time. End quote. Upon their arrival at St. Mary's, they did business with a tailor named William Hardage. He was their first stop as he bought the majority of the wool they brought with them. He did so on credit. Now that's not out of the ordinary, especially in colonial business transactions. But while the wool was being unloaded, William Hardage spent the day entertaining Ingle and Cornwallis. Once their business with the tailor was concluded, they went about their business. They bought tobacco and furs and spent time with their friends and caught up on the news. I believe one of them even ran for a political office. And then after a few weeks, they went back to England. That's, that's the story of this voyage. Just an average, everyday transaction. Something that shouldn't be relevant to a show about piracy. No piracy occurred. It seems like an average, everyday affair. A slice of life, maybe. But two things make this stand out. First of all, the tailor, William Hardage, was a bad tailor. Well, I mean, maybe he was a fine tailor, I don't know, but he was a bad businessman. 
He took the wool and spun it into cloth and made clothes from it, but he never made the money to pay his suppliers, Ingle and Cornwallis, their money. And then second, there's the outbreak of the English Civil War. Right about this time, Governor Leonard Calvert sailed back to England. He possibly did so on board the ship of Richard Ingle, although I can't find verification of that. He was going home to see his brother, Lord Baltimore. In part, it was just a regular family reunion. They hadn't seen each other in eight years, and Leonard Calvert was to be married. But more pressing to the family was their strategy, and the strategy of Maryland, should the war break out. Leonard Calvert left a lieutenant governor in command who was less than ideal for the post. We don't need to know his name. He wasn't strong-willed or savvy. He wasn't a very good governor at all, but he really didn't need to be. Calvert's plan was to sail to England, take a wife, formulate a plan, and return, a couple of months at best. The marriage went smoothly, and the plan that Leonard Calvert and Lord Baltimore concocted was good. At least it was the best option they had. They were a Catholic family in a Protestant nation that was about to go to war against the king, and the entire colony of Maryland existed due to royal decree. Should King Charles be overthrown by Protestant radicals, Maryland was in jeopardy. So they chose to walk a razor-thin line of neutrality. They would support neither side, royalists or parliamentarians. They would attempt to secure a peace with everyone and broker a treaty with whoever wound up winning this war. Maryland was there to do business. And if that turned out to be impossible and war came to the colonies, they would defend Maryland to the death. I agree with that plan. It, it's probably the best they had. And it probably would have worked. But Leonard Calvert, who was supposed to return to the colony after only a couple of months, was not able to get back to see it implemented. While they were busy strategizing, the war broke out. That interrupted the plans of the Calvert family. See, the English Navy, such as it was in 1642, was staunchly, unanimously, unequivocally a Protestant power. Radically Protestant, even. Some of the leadership were outright Puritan. The rank-and-file sailors liked the drinking and the sex too much to go that far, but they were radical. Now, there were a few who were loyal to the king, and he was able to get a few ships out to the continent and... To America. It was difficult, but he did so, carrying orders to the colonies of Virginia and Maryland. But Lord Baltimore did not have his own private navy. He couldn't get word back to Maryland. The plan, the Calvert family's strategy and how to deal with the Civil War, that razor-thin neutrality, those orders never reached St. Mary's. But the king's orders did. They were handed to that less-than-ideal governor. Orders to capture any and all ships suspected of being parliamentarians or even sympathetic to the parliamentarian cause. They were to arrest the crew and confiscate the cargo. Now that's not what Baltimore or Lord Calvert wanted. They wanted peace. But only the king's words reached America. 
So imagine this. You're a mediocre tailor with a failing business. You're in debt to a host of people, but in particular, two merchants, Richard Ingle and Thomas Cornwallis. You owe them a lot of money for the wool they sold you. Problem is, you don't have the money to pay them. In fact, they wouldn't have used money, they would have used tobacco. That's what the American colonials used as currency. But there you are, in deep, deep, crushing debt to those two. And then word arrives that any ships suspected of sympathies to the Parliament need to be captured immediately. If you, a tailor in crushing debt, were a person of poor moral character, a person with a skewed moral compass, might you choose to accuse the men who you owed so much of having those parliamentarian sympathies? Several months after that notification from the king arrived, Richard Ingle arrived in the Chesapeake on board his ship Reformation. When he did, William Hardage informed the governor, the deputy governor, that he had personally heard Richard Ingle brag that he was the captain of a ship in service of the Parliament, a ship that he specifically said was in defiance of the king. He told the governor that when Richard Ingle was ordered to come ashore by agents of the king, he refused and stood with, quote, his curtlax drawn and said, he that cometh aboard, he would cut off his head, end quote. Quite a show of defiance. The governor, upon hearing that accusation, ordered Captain Thomas Cornwallis, Ingle's friend and business partner, to serve the warrant to Richard Ingle, alongside a sheriff named Packer. The governor told Cornwallis, quote, to use all means for apprehending Ingle and to keep it secret, end quote. And Cornwallis did so. He invited Richard Ingle ashore to enjoy a lovely supper, and of course his good old friend readily accepted the offer. As they were about to sit down and enjoy said dinner, Sheriff Packer and his agents arrived and arrested Richard Ingle. And I wonder, well, I wonder about a lot of things in this story. I wonder if Thomas Cornwallis told Richard Ingle what was coming. Did he try to explain the situation? When Richard Ingle was arrested, did Thomas Cornwallis apologize to him? That's the kind of scene that I just would love to see played out on the screen, fleshed out and dramatized. There's so much that's left out of the official record here that would really give life to this story. But the important thing in this story, the fact of the matter, is that Ingle was arrested, and he was arrested far from his ship and his crew. If they had attempted to arrest him on board, the crew would have stopped it. But now that the captain was under arrest, the situation was more fluid, less defined. Once they had Ingle in custody, a group of armed men went aboard the Reformation to capture her, to take her guns and her powder, her tackle and her cargo. Now the crew was upset once they were informed that the captain was arrested. But those armed men that boarded the ship nailed a piece of paper to the mainmast that read, quote, These are to publish and proclaim to all persons, seamen as well as others, that Richard Ingle, master of this ship, is arrested upon high treason to his majesty, 
and to require all persons to be aiding and assisting in the seizure of this ship, and not to offer resistance or contempt thereunto, nor be aiding or assisting the said R. Ingle upon peril of high treason to his majesty. End quote. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The crew was angry but disarmed. And they weren't arrested exactly, mostly because St. Mary's didn't have the capability to hold them. They didn't have a jail. They were instead kept in captivity aboard the ship. Even Richard Engel himself wasn't kept in a cell. He was simply under guard. Day and night, he was accompanied by Sheriff Packer. He slept in the sheriff's own home. The sheriff didn't take Engel out very much until, that is, Richard Engel was charged and fined. The fine, really, he'd already paid. The tobacco and other goods that Ingle had aboard his ship, once they were confiscated, paid the fine. But high treason is not a misdemeanor. You don't get off with a fine. The council held a meeting to decide Richard Ingle's fate, and once they decided upon the charge of high treason, if convicted, that would lead certainly to his death. Now, much like the conversations that must have taken place when Richard Ingle was arrested, we don't have any of the secret conversations, the personal conversations that took place surrounding this trial. You know, if there were any back-alley discussions or meetings in dark taverns, we don't know what was said, but my God, I wish we did. Because, well, the same day that the council chose to try Richard Ingle on high treason... A few hours later, 
a party of men marched down to the docks of St. Mary's. And it was not a clandestine group of men. They would have drawn attention. One of them was a councilman there on the Council of Maryland. Another was Sheriff Packer, the man who was in charge of guarding Richard Engel and a prominent member of the community. And then the third was Thomas Cornwallis, a prominent trader and sea captain, one of the most famous men in town. And then the fourth was none other than Richard Engel. That group approached the Reformation and requested permission to board her. People noticed this, but nobody dared question these prominent men. A planter named John Hampton had been put in charge of the men guarding the Reformation. He was the captain of the guard. Initially, he balked at the thought of anyone boarding Reformation. His orders from the council and the deputy governor specifically forbade doing just that. But this group of men, a rich, well-known merchant, a counselor, and the sheriff, I mean, that's a lot of authority for him, a measly planter, to deny. So he allowed the party on board. The guard was wary, as any reasonable person would be, but Cornwallis put them at their ease. He said, quote, All is quiet and at peace. End quote. Remember, this is the same man that the governor himself tasked with arresting Richard Engel, clearly a person of influence, a person to be trusted. Again, David Chalmette in Pirates on the Chesapeake, quote, Cornwallis then persuaded Hampton to turn over his rapier to the gunner of the ship and to order the guard to lay down their arms and disperse. Dutifully, Hampton, a simple planter, followed Cornwallis' directions. After all, when the most influential citizen of the colony, in company with a member of the council and the sheriff of the county, coming directly from a meeting with the acting governor, directed it, who was he to object? End quote. You can guess what happens next. The crew of Reformation grabbed their weapons and captured the ship from the guards, and apparently in doing so, no blood was shed. But there are reports that Sheriff Packer, the man who had held Richard Engel in custody, was taken below deck and savagely beaten. Once that errand was done, the crew set Sheriff Packer and Thomas Cornwallis and the councilmen and all of the guards, including Hampton, everybody who wasn't a member of the crew, they put them in a boat and sent them to shore. Now that Reformation was back in the hands of the proper captain, Richard Engel, they weighed anchor, set sail, and drifted out of the harbor. And that's it. That's our story today. It's all true, and it's a fine story, but it's not a great story. We can't fill in the blanks, and there are a lot of blanks here. At least, we can't fill in the blanks with fact. Instead, though, I'd like to speculate a bit, to paint a picture of what might have happened. Let's take it back to before Richard Engel was arrested when Thomas Cornwallis invited him ashore to use all means for apprehending Ingle and to keep it secret. Now that did happen. That's what court records and later testimonies tell us. 
But there was a period of time, in between the point when Thomas Cornwallis invited Richard Ingle off the ship and when Sheriff Packer arrested Ingle. Time when they had a chance to talk. I wondered earlier what they might have talked about. But can't you imagine that scene if this were a movie? Can't you see those two men walking down the docks? You can picture Richard Engel noticing the men lurking about, sheriff's men, all of them. And there's a moment of panic. Engel knows the situation back in England, and he knows this might be very bad for him. But Cornwallis tells him, quiet, don't look behind you, listen. These men are going to arrest you, and there's nothing I could do to stop it. I convinced the governor to send me because it was either that or they were going to storm the ship and kill your men. This is the better option. Trust me. We're going to get you out of this. Just don't resist. At that point, Sheriff Packer approaches Richard Engel and arrests him. Think about the, the sense of betrayal he must have felt from his old close friend. Think about the confusion and the fear and the anger that he was feeling when he was betrayed. It must have been crushing. But then again, what about the thread of hope? Maybe Cornwallis hadn't betrayed him. Maybe he actually did have a plan, and maybe he would find a way out of this. And then, again, according to court records, we know about Engel's appearances before the governor and the council. But those appearances, at least the records we have of them, are just... Rich plantation owners and politicians proclaiming about treason and loyalty to the king. That's not interesting to me. But I'm imagining what was happening behind the curtain. I imagine Cornwallis, after arresting his friend, meeting with council officials, not in an official capacity, but after dark, maybe over a mug of ale. Meeting with them to tell them what was really going on here. To tell them about the tailor. Hardage, who owed Ingle and himself a lot of money, a tailor who had failed to pay up in some years and who knew that Richard Ingle was planning to collect his money on this visit to St. Mary's, who levied charges against Ingle in a cynical bid to enrich himself. All of them, of course, false charges. Hardage was guilty of bearing false witness, and Richard Ingle was a poor, innocent victim of his sins. I mean, can't you picture that scene? A candlelit colonial tavern, men with amazing facial hair and long, flowing curls whispering about royalist conspiracies in a dark corner. Maybe one of those men is in on the conspiracy, one of the governor's men, or maybe one of Hardage's. I picture agents of the governor, hooded and cloaked, skulking in alleyways, I picture a fight scene and a chase scene and all of that, but none of that has any basis in reality. It's pure fiction. Instead, what really grips me is the relationship between the characters that we've established. If I were writing this story, I would focus on the drama between Robert Ingle and Sheriff Packer. I see him, and this might have something to do with my image of what a sheriff is supposed to be, but I see him as a humble and intelligent and honest public servant. I don't know that that's what he was at all, but that's what I imagine. I imagine him a bit gruff, standoffish, maybe. As he 
personally guarded Robert Ingle day in and day out. But little by little, I imagine Ingle chipping away at the guard that the sheriff had up and exposing his humanity. I imagine in time the sheriff began conversing with Richard Ingle to learn his side of the story, all about the injustice of what had happened to him. Which, by the way, we don't know that to be the case, that the tailor Hardage actually was lying. Ingle may have been a parliamentarian rebel that threatened to personally behead the king for all we know. In fact, it's kind of likely. But that's not this story. It's not the story that reading about this history instills in me. I imagine Sheriff Packer eventually inviting Richard Ingle to dine with him and his family. Maybe it's a, a feast day, a religious holiday, a time for mercy. Ingle would finally get a bath and a clean shirt and, you know, maybe a, a salve for the rope burns on his wrists. And then finally, all cleaned up and freshly shaven, Ingle would sit down to dinner with the sheriff and his wife and his children. I picture Richard Ingle as humble and charming and funny. A bit guarded, maybe, but opening up. Maybe the sheriff's wife asks some questions about the charges. And of course the sheriff, a proper man, would tell her to be quiet, but she'd be a, a strong, self-possessed woman, and she'd get an answer. The sheriff, at this point, who is clearly convinced of Ingle's innocence, but refuses to admit it to himself, has to talk to his family. His daughter would probably have a bit of a crush on Ingle, and his son would want to run off and be a swashbuckling hero. And his wife, who is, of course, a perfect example, the personification of, you know, justice and truth and all of those kind of traditionally feminine virtues, would tell her husband that if he, the sheriff, is a man of honor, he'd do the right thing. And that's pure cheese. It's trope-filled melodrama. And I want to be clear, none of that happened. I'm making all of that up, but isn't that the kind of story you want to hear? The reason that my instinct to characterize all of the people in this story is so strong, I think, has to do with the appearance of those four men at the Reformation. It's, well, that's suspicious. I mean, look at it from the point of view of the sheriff. Donald Shamet writes that, quote, Ingle and his men seized the weapons and the ship. Packer was helpless to stop them. End quote. And that's the record. That's what we hear from later testimony. That's what we learn from the depositions of men that were on the verge of being charged with aiding and abetting high treason. I don't know that we can trust it. I think that those four men were involved in a conspiracy. I can picture all three of those men, the councilman, the sheriff, and Cornwallis, all attempting to secure Richard Ingalls' release legally. But the council really wants to get that conviction. They really want to please the king. The governor really wants to please the king. So those four men take matters into their own hands. I mean, what other explanation is there for Sheriff Packer agreeing to take Richard Ingle on board the Reformation? Unless he's really, really stupid, there's no reason for him to do that. I picture Sheriff Packer choosing to do the right thing. Initially, he intends to own up to his decision to 
tell everyone what he has done and face the consequences, but realizing that the well-being of his family, his wife and his children, all of that is at stake, he allows himself to be talked out of it. So instead, he agreed to allow the crew to take him below decks and beat him. What better evidence is there that you weren't in on the caper from the beginning than that they give you a good thrashing? Not too badly, not enough to do any serious permanent damage, but enough to draw some blood, to leave some bruises. The exact sort of thing that would look good when you're being questioned. Enough to convince them, at least, that you aren't guilty. In the end, Captain Richard Engel fled St. Mary's aboard his ship, the Reformation. But he didn't flee the Chesapeake. Doing so would... Well, look, Maryland was Engel's breadbasket. It's how he made a living, by trading in Maryland. If he left, he would lose that market, and he would probably be arrested once he arrived in England, or even if he went to Virginia, wherever he went. Instead, Richard Engel stayed nearby. He found a secret cove, a a hiding place from which he could launch a series of raids and ship captures. To us, this sort of thing looks familiar. It's a common pirate tactic, but in the 1640s it was a bit novel. And certainly there were pirates on, say, the Irish or the Welsh coasts of the British Isles that raided and sallied forth and captured ships all the time, but they had people in their home country who would support them. Unlike later pirates, who, very much like Richard Ingle here, were completely outside the law, with no home base, nowhere that they could recuperate, rest, or resupply. It looks a lot like the stories of later pirates. Next time we're going to talk about Richard Ingle's personal war against the colony at Maryland, and we're going to reintroduce another reputable sailor-turned-outlaw pirate, Ingalls' partner in crime, as it were, William Claiborne. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has left us a rating or a review, everybody who has signed up to help the show through the website or PayPal, and everybody who has recommended this show. All of you make this show possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the absolutely fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't yet checked them out, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Say
Captain has died. Let him live on in legend tonight.